all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 221 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Sparky episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that uh, in Disney's franchise of Lilo and Stitch, where, of course, Stitch is Experiment 626, there is another experiment known as Sparky. And Sparky's experiment number is, of course... 221. With that wonderful little bit of Lilo and Stitch knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from post-controversial Oscars, California, would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And believe it or not, I have yet to watch Lilo and Stitch. Well, it's a pretty good movie. Is it really, though? Considering what we have now from, like, Disney Pixar... Does it hold up to even the better Disney Pixar movies? I would say yes, um, mainly because mainly because of the art style, um, and also because of um, it. It really does show a good balance in hardship of real life and the situation of the characters um, of Lilo and her family. But at the same time, it really blends it well with the with the absurd and the sci-fi nature that Stitch brings uh, brings to the mix. So, um, yeah, I'd say it holds up. I mean, my my daughter is all all the time running around. She's like, I I can do Stitch, Daddy. I'm like, really? Do Stitch for me? And she's like, and she and she says and goes, oh, how do I mean family all, all the time. So, well, I mean, okay. So to me, the obscure. 2D hand-drawn uh, uh, Disney movies from that time, uh, in my mind at least, were Lilo and Stitch, The Emperor's New Groove. Regard, I mean, I definitely know both of those movies were incredibly popular and have a massive following. I was going to say, uh, Lilo and Stitch had a budget of $80 million and brought in a cool $273 million. So and I that wouldn't is say why obscure. I'm saying, I'm saying in my mind it's obscure. Ah! I'm not saying that it was. I mean, it spawned what two sequels? Emperor's New Groove spawned a couple. Se- I see. I've actually seen Emperor's uh, New Groove more times than the zero times that I've I've watched Lilo and Stitch. But then you also have the Cal one with Roseanne, Home on the Range. I think so. To me, like oh, in my yeah, mind, yeah. those were the obscure Disney movies of that time. In fact, I think for a while, Home on the Range was the last hand drawn 2D Disney movie. Up until Princess and the Frog. Princess and the Frog, yeah. Yeah, I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. Because that was right when Pixar kind of took over and started doing their thing all the time, I guess. But I was going somewhere with this. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember, but of course, <laughs> the potato in my head has failed me. It has sputted out. Do you prefer Lilo and Stitch to uh, Emperor's New Groove? Because with me, I think the hand-drawn Disney movies kind of ended after Hercules. I remember that one being the last one that I really liked. Well, I also think that some of it has to do with our with our age at the time. I mean, I wasn't really going out of my way back in 2000 to go and see these movies. I was 
23 in the year 2000. So I wasn't really going out of my way to watch them, but when I would notice uh, notice them on DVD or whatever, I would be like, oh, that looks kind of interesting. And then, of course, remembering I liked Disney movies when I was a kid, I, I might rent them or pick them up or whatever. So, Wait, so you're, you're saying at the age of 23 you would rather go see Fight Club or... <laughs> yes, especially at that time. Yes, yeah. I would have rather gone to see Fight Club. No, guys, so, no, 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 Hank. You go and see Fight Club. I'm going to go rewatch Disney's Hercules. There's just something about James Woods and Danny because, DeVito. I can't because I can go the distance. I I go the distance with Michael Bolton. All right, every day. Oh shit! So. Is it kind of funny that Michael Bolton is still kind of a thing? He is still so much of a thing. That he has his own uh, his own Valentine's Day special on Netflix. I which saw is that he saw a Netflix, and and the thing was is that I was I kind of wanted to give it a shot, but at the same time, I was not overly wowed by a very Murray Christmas, um, which was of course Bill Murray's thing from not 2016 but 2015, and so because I wasn't really overly wowed by. A very Merry Christmas. Um, even though there were some really funny things in it, but taken on the whole, it, you know, and so I, I did not give the Michael Bolton thing a shot. Did you? I did. I gave it about 30, not even 30 minutes worth of a, of a shot until we had to turn it off. I mean, the, the premise is funny because it's all about Michael Bolton is asked by Santa Claus to, persuade everybody in the world to make love on valentine's day and he does this through uh by way of song and little skits and whatnot all very kind of like sexual in theme and the 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 idea of it is really funny but it's never followed through with wit or decent humor it's very like out there it's it's uh it's produced by uh the lonely island guys so it's very much that kind of humor where the idea the initial idea is funny it just doesn't have the follow-through so and i guess that's just my quick review of it fair enough fair enough so um yeah are we uh are we gonna talk about our life this last week or do we just need to go ahead and Jump into the show. Well, clearly somebody's life isn't going so well right now. But uh, other than it's been raining here, there's really not much to report on my end. How about how about you? I, I know you've had uh, a week full of ups and downs. Yes, um, I will. Yeah, sure. Um, well, maybe might be a little cathartic. Okay, so. Um, Last Wednesday, which was the day that we actually recorded the show last week, um, my my father-in-law died, and we were very close, and it was, uh, it has been incredibly hard. Yesterday was the funeral, um, at which, uh, to show you what kind of a guy he was, 700 people showed up to this thing, so... Um, and only half stayed for the free food after. So, I mean, I'm thinking that people genuinely liked, you know, my father-in-law. Um, what, but, was there uh, enough free food for all 700 people? <laughs> or were Actually, you, like, secretly they... counting on people not to show up? <laughs> well, the funny thing was is that um, 
we we were actually expecting in the neighborhood of 500 and they had planned on food for 200 because naturally not everybody sticks around after but um they had planned on food for 200 and normally at the um cathedral or whatever i mean it was a is a huge lutheran church is where this thing was held um and so normally though the the funerals after the funerals the visitations and stuff are held in the main sanctuary building in a uh, in a lower area of the sanctuary building they actually had to move it to the school across the parking lot because the cafeteria uh was the only thing large enough with overflow into the gymnasium to hold everybody who was coming so they planned on 200 people and moved there just in case and probably about 350ish ended up sticking around so i mean yeah it was it was quite a quite a cool thing to just look and see all of the amazing people that um my father-in-law had touched in his life and to be a part of that was really awesome so there's been uh there's been some you know been been a few tears here and there and uh been laughter as well and uh you know so now we're um things are slowly starting to etch their way back into a new normal if you will so i'm i'm definitely i have definitely if if there has ever been a time i've been glad of this show it's been this week because it's kind of a um, a normalizing thing and kind of a distraction and a bit of a break and uh yeah so that's that's been my last five days well i must ask did he have a favorite movie or one that you two would like to talk about (laughs) believe it or not the the movie that caused the most contention ever (laughs) was rubber So he liked Rubber, because I know you hate that movie. He agreed with you. I was always so pissed off about that. (laughs) (laughs) He was, I was like, how can you take Tim's side? You, you know, oh my God, yes. We would go around, and it would come up no less than twice a year. Somehow the conversation would drift, and he would, and it would be like, "So you mean this is kind of like that rubber movie with the tire?" And I'm like, "No, oh God, no!" And so we would get, in, you know, get into arguments about it. Um, we were both really big Star Trek fans, really, really ultra big Star Wars fans as well. So we definitely had those movies in common. We loved. Um, we also really enjoyed technology. Uh, we, you know, so it was cool because he was always on bleeding edge technology stuff. He was like the first person to have a plasma TV that I ever knew. And he didn't just go out of his way to get a plasma TV when it was brand new. He literally got a 50 inch plasma TV when they were still $10,000. Shite. Wow. Yes. And he calls me up, uh, literally at one o'clock in the morning and he, uh, the phone rings. Jen and I were just hanging out, or we had just come in from hanging out with our friends, because this is like back in 2005, 2004. Uh, Jen and I had only been married for a little while. And the phone rings, and I see it's Mike, so I pick up. I'm like, hey! He's like, hey, are you awake? And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're up. You know we're night owls. He's like, um, 
you want to come over and help me install a TV? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, it's a s- super special TV. I really think you'll like it. And I was like, okay. It's like, Jen, you want to go over to your parents' house and watch me and your dad install a TV? He, she's like, are you fucking serious? You're going to install a TV at one o'clock? I was like, apparently that's what we're doing. So we did. We went over there and it turns out the reason why it was so oddly timed was because we, uh, he, he had this huge, really beautiful, uh, antique oak, um, cabinet. And it was originally a wardrobe and it belonged to, it belonged to Janice, uh, my, my mother-in-law. And she was mortified that he would try and turn this into an entertainment center um, because they didn't need it as a wardrobe anymore. But, of course, it's, it's really pretty and, you know, really fit in with the decor. And so she didn't want to get rid of it. And so she's like, you're not drilling into this thing. You are not putting mounts and all this kind of stuff in there. So what he did was because um, all of his sound equipment, you know, so, I mean, he had huge mixers. He had a... 602 DVD changer at the time. I mean, seriously. So all of the uh, equipment, the sound equipment stuff was really heavy and uh, created uh, a great weight along with the unit itself. So he had a custom weighted frame built and placed on the top shelf inside the wardrobe so that it would act as its own counter lever. And then you could drill and hang the frames and TVs and stuff onto that interior little counterweight. And that's, that's what had taken so long. And so they had finally got it done and the guys had come in in the early evening and they didn't wrap it up, uh, and leave until like 11 o'clock at night. So Mike just couldn't wait until the next day. He said, you know, he waited about an hour and a half. He's like, I want to do it now. I want to do it. So he called me up. And we were there, I don't know, probably took all in probably about an hour and a half, two hours to get everything in, wired in correctly, hanging all up. And uh, yeah, so we, and then we sat down and watched a movie. What was that movie? What was the inaugural movie? I am trying to think. 2000. I want to say. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Maybe? My, my mind is no. My mind is either leaning towards it was either Indiana Jones or a Spider-Man movie. I can't remember which. Okay. Okay. So, you know, because we had the whole surround sound and all that stuff, so we had to pick something that was, you know, all about it. Yeah. And That's so cool. yeah, you know. So this was so this was the kind of man that my father-in-law was. Well, I'm glad the two of you uh, uh, were able to share rubber uh, together. I'm glad you had rubber in your lives. <laughs> I'm also equally ecstatic that I pop up <laughs> within that story as well, because if yes, there's one all, thing that we all shared the same rubber, Tim. Best... That's, that's, what, what's that? We all shared the, I said we all shared the same rubber. We do share the same rubber. I tell the significant other that all the time. <laughs> one for me and one for my homie down in Texas. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You were trying to say something, but again, the baked potato in my head had sputtered out, and I can't remember. <laughs> so it's cool. <sighs> Fun times. It's it, it, it happens. I checked the old mail sack here. Uh, we don't have any emails to uh, read, but we do have a Twitter follower to mention. It looks like we have Atomic Music, which is at underscore. 
Atomic Music, A-T-O-M-I-C-M-U-S-I-C. And uh, they are following us now, so thank you so much for that follow, Atomic Music. We appreciate it. And um, that's what's up there. If you want to send us an email, please feel free to do so by sending us an email to the show at slscast.com. And if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you, of course, can do that by following us at the SLS cast. So I think now, yes, I agree. It is time for the news. Should we get to it? We shall. Then here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up from me, uh, we have got from digitalnewsculture.com, Rampage Movie begins production in April. I do not seem to have any direct attribution here for an author, so that's what's up. And uh, the article reads as follows, yes... DigitalNewsCulture.com says, Do y'all remember the classic video game Rampage? The one that swooped across the nation, a nation with its monstrosity? It gave millions the pleasure to demolish as many buildings as possible as the whole army tried to get rid of you. Believe it or not, April 2018 holds a great surprise for all of you Rampage fans out there. Dwayne The Rock Johnson will star in next year's blockbuster Rampage, The Movie, along with Moonlight's Naomi Harris, who will play, quote, a geneticist with a moral streak, end quote. Uh, meanwhile, Rock will take on the part of a hero and animal lover. Other big names include Joe Mangiarello, Mary Shelton, whose roles are yet to surprise us. What do you think there? Are you excited to hear that they're actually making a movie based on the video game Rampage? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I could not, I truly could not believe. It. I mean, okay, so for those of you who don't have the, this is the one where the, it's, uh, you've got the King Kong looking ape guy, you've got the, uh, iguana monster looking thing, and then a big giant werewolf, and you are being shot at by, the military, and you're trying to destroy the buildings and eat the people out of the buildings and stuff. Uh, and then you are, you're, you're successful when you can completely destroy all of the buildings in a stage and then you go to the next stage and continue on. Um, and then of course, when you got sh- shot up enough, you would then lose your, um, mutation and turn into a regular size human being and then die. So yes. who who's the This good sounds guy? like something that's a movie. I, I have no yeah. idea who's supposed to be the I don't yeah. That was so, a game that I anyway. never understood. Like I'd I'd go to Fuddruckers and play it at Fuddruckers <laughs> and die re- incre- really quickly, incredibly quickly, or just quickly. I would just die quickly and just give up. To me that game wasn't as appealing as like Donkey Kong or um but I guess you can't really make a movie about Donkey Kong. Like, why would a giant ape be throwing barrels at a Mario-looking dude? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, uh, like, I, I enjoyed the game. I always had fun with this game in the arcades when I was a kid. I mean, I, I you know, simple, stupid concept. It was a lot of fun. You know, blow shit up, right? Yeah. Um, I just don't 
I, I legitimately do not see how this can be a movie, but um, I guess we're going to find out. I just also don't know about The Rock. I mean, like what we were talking about last week, I'm just kind of rocked out by The Rock. He's doing the upcoming Sony uh, uh, Jumanji sequel re- reboot. He's wanting to do a remake of Big Trouble in Little China. He's about to come out with the Baywatch movie. Um, all these movies are comedies. Baywatch is the raunchy comedy of the bunch. So, like, I- I'd like to see him do something more original, you know? It seems like the last original thing that he was in was The Tooth Fairy. And I really don't know how original the Tooth Fairy, that concept, was. I agree. Because for a second there, I thought you said the last original thing he was going to be in was, or the last original thing he'd done was WWF. So I'm glad you <laughs> went with Tooth Fairy, because I, I seriously thought you were going there. Um, no, I agree. I, I mean, I'm I'm glad that he is not afraid to go out and do these fun projects. And because without it, because without it, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see the successes like the Tooth Fairy. So I'm glad he's willing to take the risks, and I'm glad that he's bankable enough of a star that he can continue to take these risks. I just, um, but we have to remember that for every Tooth Fairy, and I mean, for I mean, like it or love, you know, love it or hate it, every San Andreas we have. Equally, we have parts like uh, the Scorpion King and Hercules. So. I mean, it's it's not all not all the gambles pay off, and uh, I guess I guess we'll find out next year. According to the Rock's Instagram account, uh, where he posted a picture of him with the writing staff, he says that shooting shooting begins this April, and I guess they're looking for April of next year to release. What do you got for us there, Tim? But quickly, I will say that I will be on board whenever they ask The Rock to host the Academy Awards, because I think he would do a pretty good job at hosting an award show, personally. You know, I think he does. I mean, he's got the personality to do it. He's definitely self-effacing enough that um, he's not afraid to make fun of himself. I think he's also likable enough that people will be okay with him making fun of them. Also... With the WWE crowd, are you kidding me? I mean, there's a whole new subset of viewers that um, could reinvigorate the thing. So True that. And also, because of those viewers, I would think that um, maybe some of any potential for like acceptance speech rhetoric might be toned down some. Maybe not, but you know, you've got that as a potential um, positive also. So, anyway. My first two pieces of news are as follows. First up, via thehollywoodreporter.com, Japanese auteur Seijun Suzuki dies at 93. This here is written by Gavin J. Blair, and it says this. The cult director who churned out Yakuza gangster B-movies that were later hailed as classics influenced Quentin Tarantino and Jim Jarmusch. Japanese director Seijun Suzuki died February 13th at a Tokyo hospital after a battle with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which affects the lungs. He was 93. His death was announced by Nikatsu, the studio that famously fired him in 1967 after 12 years and 40 films for what is now seen as his masterpiece, Branded to Kill. The film was made in black and white as a punishment for his work on Tokyo Drifter, now also considered a classic the year before. 
Both films were intended by Nigatsu to be straightforward B-movie Yakuza gangster films, but Suzuki's experimental style, unconventional narrative flow, and comedy touches were too much for the studio bosses. Suzuki sued for unfair dismissal and found himself shunned by the industry and unable to direct for a decade. Quote, Seijun Suzuki made his directorial debut with Harbor Toast, Victory is in Our Grasp, in 1956, and since then he continued to influence fans and filmmakers all around the world with films such as Tokyo Drifter, Branded to Kill, and, uh, I'm gonna butcher this, but I'm gonna try saying it anyways, Shizurweizen. I sound like those weird, distorted-sounding characters from Twin Peaks. But uh, that is uh, spelt Z-I-G, I think, E-U-N-E-R-W-E-I-S-E-N. Again, he is known for Tokyo Drifter, Branded to Kill, and that one I failed at saying. And quote said, Nigatsu, in a statement adding, quote, We hereby express our deepest condolence and our proud gratitude and respect for his lifelong work. And all quotes there. Um, the article does go on for a bit more. I highly recommend you guys check it out. That was underrated Japanese auteur Seijun Suzuki, who passed away at the age of 93. Guys, you got to check out Branded to Kill, and you definitely have to check out Tokyo Drifter. Currently, you can buy it on Blu-ray, uh, or even rent it on Blu-ray. Uh, Criterion released it a handful of years ago, and it's absolutely beautiful. Just fantastic colors, and his sense of humor is absolutely refreshing and original, even watching it today. And you can definitely see the influence it had on Quentin Tarantino. Next up for me, via thehollywoodreporter.com, Warner Brothers courts Mel Gibson to direct Suicide Squad. Sequel, this here is written by Boris Kitt. Warner Brothers is courting the actor-director to helm Suicide Squad 2, and the sides are early in talks. The Hollywood Reporter has learned no official offer has been made, nor has any commitment. Sources say that Gibson is familiarizing himself with the material, but the studio is not being passive and is also looking at other directors, Daniel Espinoza among them. David Ayer directed the initial outing, which featured an all-star cast including Will Smith, Margot Robbie, and Jared Leto. The 2016 movie faced some hurdles during production and was met with somewhat polarizing response, but grossed $745 million worldwide, enough to put a sequel on the fast track. Ayer is now developing Gotham City Sirens, a project that reunites him with Robbie and focuses on the female villains of the DC universe. The article does go on from there. If you want to read more about it, do check it out. But Matt, what do you think about the idea, the possibility that Mel Gibson could direct a Suicide Squad movie. The material has already been established. The universe has already been established. These characters have already been established. And we all know that Warner Brothers, they like to control their superhero movies, especially. So I, I, I would just be afraid that Mel Gibson won't have the control that he needs to make a really good movie. And I just don't want to see him fail, because if he fails, I don't think it would be good in this stage of his career. But what do you think about this? Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. I think um, he is – I believe the reason that they are courting him to do this uh, is twofold. One, um, clearly he's 
he's back, like we had said when we you know did the Oscar nominees. Um, but as a as a, an Academy Award uh, winner um, and an Academy Award nominated director, also his most recent film uh, was nominated for Best Picture. And it is a um, and, and and if you look at the subject matter of his most recent directing effort for which he was nominated and the Best Picture nominee, I mean. Clearly, the man can do action. Go all the way back to uh, Apocalypto. Excellent action. Go all the way back to Braveheart. Again, excellent action. Clearly, the guy knows how to construct a battle. Um, and that's what Suicide Squad is doing. It's going to be a battle of, you know, moderately good, for lack of a better term, versus evil, right? So, um, I can see why they would they would want him to come in to do this. However... Like you, like you say, I, there's no way that they would give Gibson the freedom to do a good enough job. Also, because they would never let it be R, it's already a non-starter. Um, because all of Gibson's movies are rated R. Virtually all of Gibson's movies are rated R. And, there's a reason for that. And good reason for that. And I think that it allows, a um, a grit and a truth to storytelling that you just cannot get in a PG-13 movie. And there's no way they're not going to let Suicide Squad escape with anything more than a PG-13. Um, so I agree with you, man. I, 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 it's, it's clear that there are good reasons to try and get him, but it's a recipe for a disaster. And moving along for me, I now have a pair of uh, stories as well, uh, both revolving around Netflix. Now, this is kind of a fun one here. Uh, this actually comes from Netflix.com. This is media.netflix.com. Uh, and again, uh, let's see here. It looks like Katie Urban uh, wrote this. So thank you to Katie Urban. Uh, this comes actually from just before Valentine's Day because yeah, oh so prescient to talk about Netflix cheating is on the rise globally and shows no signs of stopping. Yes, that's actually what uh, my wife and I, we refer to as cheating. We tell our friends, you know, oh, I cheated on my wife the other day, or she'll say, oh, I cheated on my husband. And we're, of course, referring to Netflix because we're supposed to be watching a show together, and then we watch some episodes without the other. People... I'm I'm glad that this is kind of becoming a more well-known thing because for the last five or six years, people kind of look at us like, how the hell can you be so cavalier? What the fuck? And then they realize what we're talking about and they're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. So um, apparently this is now becoming a thing, which is good because now we can talk about it. Uh, it says here that new data reveals 46% of streaming couples around the world are watching ahead of their partners and most only plan to cheat more. Yes. It says no relationship is safe. According to a new study released today by Netflix, of course, this was back from the 13th of February, and the study was actually done by Netflix. Uh, nearly half, uh, 46% of streaming couples around the world have, quote, cheated, end quote, on their significant other, but it's not what you think. 
Defined as watching a TV show ahead of your significant other, Netflix cheating was first uncovered in a study in the U.S. in 2013. Four years, early, four years later, cheating has increased three times and has become a common behavior around the world. This behavior only continues to grow with 60% of consumers saying they'd cheat more if they knew they'd get away with it. And once you cheat, you can't stop. 81% of cheaters are repeat offenders and 44% have cheated three plus times. In a binge-watching world where it's easy to say just one more, Netflix cheating has become has quickly become the new normal. And um, definitely you'll want to take a look um, at this um, at this article. It's not very long. It just kind of gives you an infographic and kind of shows where it's at. Um, although it is kind of interesting that it does actually lead to some strife. Because when people find out, it's like, damn it, I wanted to watch that with you. I mean, so it does actually kind of lead to some to some fights and everything. Um, and I misquoted. I apologize. The survey it says it, uh, I, I initially said was done by Netflix. I apologize. It actually says the survey was conducted by SurveyMonkey from December twenty. 20- 20th to 31st, 2016, and is based on 30,267 responses. So, um, sorry about that, uh, just to clarify. So, what do you think there, Tim? Real quick, before I jump into the next one. Um, do you cheat, or does your significant other cheat? We are very honest with one another, Matthew. We're not <laughs> cavaliers like you and your wife are. Yeah, we we cheat on each other all the time. We have uh, <laughs> we we have an open uh, we we have an <laughs> we have an open Netflix watching <laughs> schedule. Don't I mean we use protection? You know, like sometimes we have the ad blockers not on, but sometimes we know we're like we got to put the ad blockers on uh, just in case. You know, if we if we're if we're watching on our laptops, we are extra careful. Uh, we have. The uh, you know we can't get any viruses. We have you know so it, we're, I mean we we cheat, but we're we're open about it. We have discussions. Uh, we we discuss what we are going to be cheating on each other with. You know, like you know, she likes Fuller House. I don't. So she well, watches. That's not that. really cheating. Well, not I mean, true. that's not really cheating. I give her permission. It's, it's, though. it's a, oh oh you very know. good very good i'm I'm so glad that y'all I mean, that. and what else is she supposed to do while I'm recording for two hours once a week? I tell her to cheat away <laughs> there you go all right, well, then real quickly here the other side of the Netflix stuff uh this one actually comes from thefilmstage.com dot com uh by way of Jordan Raup. Netflix picks up Martin Scorsese's The Irishman now aiming for a twenty nineteen release uh this actually comes um it, it was actually posted on the twenty first of February. It says here that after developing silence for decades, uh, let's see, Martin Scorsese finally completed his pre, uh, priest drama, and despite what awards season or the box office suggest, it will go down as one of his greatest films. For his next feature, he'll be tackling another long-developing project with The Irishman, but according to a new report, it will be uh, unprecedented territory for the director, distribution-wise. Initially, picked up by Paramount, who was planning to release it domestically, as well as Media Asia, who picked up Chinese distribution, and STX Entertainment, who has other international rights elsewhere, IndieWire reports a new deal has been made, and it's not with a theatrical distributor. Netflix has stepped in and grabbed worldwide rights, according to the outlet. Quote, Scorsese's movie is a risky deal, and Paramount is not in the position to take risks. This way, he can make the project he wants, end quote, a source says, referencing the studio's president, Brad Gray, making plans to step down. 
starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, and perhaps Joe Pesci and Bobby Cannavale. The crime drama is about Frank the Irishman Sheeran, a mob hitman whose illustrious career is today best known for a supposed involvement in the death of Jimmy Hoffa. Once aiming for a 2018 release, it's now more likely to arrive in 2019, including a day-and-date bow in theaters and on Netflix, and a limited Oscar-qualifying run prior to that. Uh, there is just a little bit more uh, to this article. I've done about two-thirds, but um, it would be... It would behoove you to read the rest of this article. What do you think, Tim? Um, I believe that this is a good move. I think this is a good move. I think that when you have directors, especially those of Scorsese's caliber, who are struggling with long gestating projects, I think that um, studios like Netflix, studios like Amazon, if they're willing to take that risk, um, then let's do it. Uh, I, 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 especially while Netflix is still sputtering on the top of its climb as it, as it now begins to plateau, why not? Why not ride the elevator to the last floor and grab, and grab up great directors like Scorsese to do awesome projects? What do you think, Tim? Yeah, unfortunately it's come to this. I'm sure it's because silence didn't do all that hot at the movie theater, only, Three people went to go see it, and two of those people were you and I. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a good movie. It was a very good movie. It was a very long movie. It was an incredibly well-made movie, but it didn't catch anybody's attention, you know? And unfortunately, with movies like that, it's more and more difficult for directors to make, especially when these are directors' movies. This was a passion project for Martin Scorsese. So uh, most of the input came from him, and I'm sure some of the producers, but it was his movie. Now, I understand The Irishman is a movie that he's been wanting to make for many years. Unfortunately, with Netflix, Netflix's original content is very hit or miss. Netflix makes great shows, but they do it in partnership with bigger studios. Not not all of them, but a, a number of them, like uh, House of Cards and Orange is the New Black and various others. They make those in partnership with other studios. I would just hate to see Martin Scorsese going into The Irishman and not having either full control or not or uh, not necessarily not having full control, but also not having that producer there that's willing to fight with them over what they think is right. And I'm meaning a good producer fighting with them and trying to help uh, help expand this movie into something that is good, into something that's even great. That's why in the past we've had great Ron Howard and Brian Grazer movies, because at their peak, they worked incredibly well together and made fantastic movies. Same thing with Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Kathleen Kennedy, and Steven Spielberg, for example. And it just seems like with Netflix... Sarandos just gives all the power to the filmmaker at some points. Though he acts as a, as a producer, he doesn't give them any hurdles to jump over, like creative hurdles. He doesn't. I don't think he he has that uh, creative mind to really contribute anything worthwhile to the creativity of a film. And that is where I stand with Netflix. If anything that I said made any sense, hopefully that <laughs> in some way came across. I just don't want to see him. Tell Martin Scorsese, make the movie, whatever you want to make it, and not like distribute the creative influence, you know, around the table or or to other different sources that are creative people and work well with Martin Scorsese. I don't know. Does that any of that make any sense at all? I well, no, we it does. It, it does. I 
No, I, I mean, I get it. You're, you're basically just trying to make sure, like, um, as great as Martin Scorsese can be, just like any truly great artist, they need a, they need someone trusted who can be a good counter. Um, and you're, and you're worried that basically, um, Netflix might be in their zeal to, um, in their zeal at attempting to and or successfully grabbing someone of the caliber of Scorsese who is bringing people like uh, potentially Pesci and definitely uh, Pacino and De Niro on board. They're going to just like, you know, give them the keys to the safe. Um, and and that is a fair thing. But I really think that um, while, yes, in the overall in the movie department, documentaries notwithstanding netflix does have a bit of a shaky track record um i i do however believe that with this level of gravitas i i think that they will also not just you know give them the keys to the safe as in, in my previous you know uh metaphor um, but I am worried that 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 could happen as well. However, I'm more excited because I really want to see Netflix do great things with movies. Uh, because as we've talked about before, and we know this is coming, it's coming down the pike. Netflix is 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 basically aiming to be a network, and um, they're already almost there. And I really want them to be a truly great network at least in the vein of not exactly like but in the vein of hbo which can make great original movies as well as great television as well as great documentaries so um there you go sir so uh what do you got for us well my last piece of news is actually going to piggyback off of uh scorsese's irishman netflix stx deal uh, via Variety.com, an exclusive STX weighing legal action over Netflix deal for Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. This here is written by Brent Lang and Nick Vivarelli, and it says this. And I apologize if I do a little bit of backtracking here, but uh, uh, here it goes. Martin Scorsese's upcoming mob movie The Irishman looks to be running into trouble as distributor STX is weighing legal action over Mexican producer Gaston Pavlovich's pending deal with Netflix. STX bought all non-U.S. distribution rights to the Robert De Niro starring movie last year in a $50 million deal that was the talk of the Cannes Film Festival. But STX's role in distributing the film was cast in a doubt after Pavlovich and his Fabricia de Cine outfit tried to switch instead to a worldwide deal with Netflix. Meanwhile, the Irishman production budget is quickly ballooning to $125 million from its originally estimated cost of $100 million. The studio released a terse statement through a spokesman, saying, quote, As a policy, STX does not comment on rumors or matters related to litigation, end quote. The statement reads, News of Netflix closing in on a global distribution deal for the Irishman has set off alarm bells with international distributors who had bought rights to the film from STX. As of late Thursday in Europe and Asia, STX had not notified the distributors that their agreements were liable to be canceled. The silence makes sense, given the company's possible choice to pursue legal remedies. 
but the reports of an imminent deal between Pavlovich and Netflix have alarmed and angered some of those distributors who feel they have been kept out of the loop and are waiting for answers, saying, quote, It's like you selling me an apartment and then saying someone else is going to move in, in quote, said Stefano Massinzi of Italy's Lucky Red, which purchased the Irishman for Italy. Olivier van den Broek of Belgian distributor The Searchers, which also struck a deal with STX, said he expected his contract to be honored. He said, quote, We have a legally binding and fully executed contract real exclusive rights in Benelux for the Irishman. Van den Broek wrote in an email saying, quote, The chain of title as of today allows, to my knowledge, no opening for Netflix to even negotiate international rights with these deals in place. Uh, end all quotes there. Uh, it does mention that Netflix declined to comment. So this is very interesting. Um, and I think a lot of us saw that something uh, like this was going to happen, especially when you're dealing with international distribution rights. Uh, I work in a international home entertainment department, so I'm very familiar with how territories feel when it comes to streaming rights, especially with a brand new movie where more than likely it's not going to get a national huge-ass run at movie theaters, and it's going to go straight to a digital streaming service, something like Netflix, where it's virtually free for some people because six ninety nine a month for Netflix is pretty damn cheap. It's close to free. So it's very interesting. And a lot of these companies that have bought international rights or territory rights for their said territory are not incredibly huge companies either. So they need to make some money. And when Netflix is stepping in, uh, it's kind of raining on their parade a little bit. Matt, what do you say about this? I disagree, mainly because uh, all they have to do is abide by uh, film scheduling. So basically, if um, STI is upset saying, hey, you know, we've got this international deal um, and we're trying to distribute the film in, in theaters, you're going to fuck us over if you're just streaming it while we're trying to show it in the theaters. Well, okay, then you go do your run in the theaters, and as soon as you're done in the theaters, we'll put it on Netflix. Um, and people are like, well, it doesn't matter because you're showing Netflix in, um, in, in the United States when we're trying to show it in Poland. Well, guys, you know, those, that would be people who are watching it illegally. That's not our fault. It's not your fault either, but let's face some facts here. Um, and, and in addition to that, those kinds of scenarios are also why Netflix is really, really hard on VPNs, um, and they're really hard on VPN users, right or wrong, despite legitimate reasons to use VPNs. So it's not like it can't be worked out, and it's not like they can't um, operate within it. I think that basically STI has a right to be angry, but STI also mean has a, a right STX? to expect... I'm sorry, STX, thank you. <laughs> Sexually transmitted, you know, whatever. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, STX um, does have a right to be angry, but at the same time, um, STX also has to understand that without this deal, they have no movie to show, period. So you can buy all the mo you can spend all the money for rights to a movie, but if it doesn't get made, you've just lost all your money. So you have to decide, is uh, it, do you want... A hundred dollars, you know, you spent a thousand dollars. Do you want a hundred dollars back or do you want zero dollars back? Um, if the Netflix deal means you only get a hundred dollars back, yes, it sucks. It's kind of a shitty thing, but 
it's better than zero. And that's pretty much where they're at right now. So, and especially when all it would take would be, hey, Netflix, come on, can help us out here. We need to make more than 100 bucks on this. All right, cool. How much time do you need? We need this amount of time. Okay, well, that's not going to work for us. Blah, 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 blah. And then they come to a deal so that they can show it in the theaters. STX makes some money. And then Netflix does what they're going to do. I have a feeling this is what's happening. So a lot of people, the general thought when it comes to knowing that something is going to be shown on Netflix soon after it's released is that eh, if we're not really looking forward to the movie, then, you know, we'll just catch it on Netflix or we'll catch it on HBO. We'll catch it on stars. I mean, people have been saying stuff like that for many, many years. It's just now because of what Netflix is, it's, it's a little bit more uh, disheartening because it's easier to do that because of what Netflix obviously has become. And so if you, have these movies where in the U.S. it's going to be instantly available on Netflix, but then over in the territories are going to be like, well, we're going to do it at movie theaters. We're gonna, we want to distribute it this way because The Irishman might actually be a bigger movie. They're worried that people are not going to go see it at the movie theater because it's going to be on Netflix soon after. Because eventually Netflix is going to get those the rights. If, if obviously if Netflix is in that territory, they're going to they're going to distribute the movie that way. That's going to be technically their home video release of it. So if people know that going in, depending on the movie, either they're going to go see the movie once, depending on the pe- people, but they're not going to revisit the movie at the movie theater. And with movies like this, people rely on revisiting the movie at the movie theater. And Martin Scorsese has a great track record for making really good movies that warrants repeat viewings at the movie theater. And so I think there's just like a couple things... I don't know. It's we're in a weird. We're still in a weird like transition when it comes to online streaming, instant online streaming like Netflix distributing these brand new movies. So it's fascinating. It's, I'm very interested in seeing where this is gonna, what direction this is gonna go in. Well, then that is going to end the news and bring us to uh, our, uh, I guess, our bonus segment, if you will, the Oscar detox. Yeah, this detox, man. So. As we detox, what's up? Well, I gave live tweeting a shot last night. <laughs> and what did you think? Um, I, I don't know. The lovely Diana, I know she followed a number of the tweets. She either commented or retweeted, so we had a little bit of action on the Twitter sphere when it came to the live tweeting. There were yes, and there were. Uh, I noticed that our um, inbox had people who had been quoting us and retweeting us retweeting us and stuff so i think that was a great deal i I was a little um i was a little bit um sidetracked yesterday i did not get a chance to watch the oscars but um i did get to kind of follow along when i was getting tagged in the tweets and stuff so i was excited when you know a few times that i was right um i was really excited because i got to know that i was right a few times so i was like yeah woo so um but I, and then I went over the winners today. I looked over the entire winner list, and I was just really, you know, pissed off when stuff like fucking City of Stars won and shit like that. I was really pissed that Zootopia won, um, and yeah, I just I really don't feel that it was the better movie. Um, but whatever. So certain things like that kind of irked the shit out of me, but. I thought it was a good show. Uh, I don't know how much of it you caught, but I think the the awards portion of it was absolutely fantastic. There were some beautiful speeches 
Mahershala Ali's speech was absolutely wonderful. Viola Davis's speech was incredibly powerful and moving. I mean, other than Jimmy Kimmel, it wasn't super politically charged. And I I liked it. It felt like I was watching a, a classic award show. But man, I thought Jimmy Kimmel was completely out of his element doing this. It just felt like he was only he was doing his same shtick that he does on his late night show. And I just wanted to see more entertainment. I wanted to see see him do something different, I guess. I don't know. For the first half of the freaking Oscars, he looked like a sad penguin up there. <laughs> a tired sad penguin. He looked like he had just tried some grape mole and didn't like it. Grape mole? Yes, something uh something I discovered uh, at dinner this evening. We were uh, I I was um hanging out with the uh with the family, you know, with all the leftover family that we still have in town and everything. And um my wife had made some amazing guacamole, but there was also a bit of a fruit salad there. And my uncle my uncle Gene had actually um <laughs> I don't know what possessed him to do it, but he took a half of a grape and dipped it in guacamole and then ate it. <laughs> green grape. Green grape, to be specific. And he slowly convinced everybody to try it. And and then, so I, I was the first person to venture and try it, you know, to humor him. And it turned, I was like, eh, okay, you know, it's not the worst thing you'll ever eat. Uh, it's definitely not bad, you know, whatever. And then he ended up literally combining it and putting it on a tortilla chip and eating the tortilla chip. And by that point, he got everybody to eat it. It's, it is like the weirdest combination of salty, sweet, and savory. It's actually good. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's outstanding and it's not great. I w- don't think I would ever sit down and, you know, make this for myself, but I cannot say that I'm sorry that I ate it. And we were talking about it and like, oh, wow, the grape guacamole. And I'm like, it's grapeamole. And yeah, so Jimmy Kimmel must have looked like he tried grapeamole and didn't like it. That was invigorating. <laughs> and and that's the Oscar detox. That's how you detox from the Oscars. You enjoy grape mold. Apparently. Well, there, there are actually a couple things I wanted to cover in this little segment here. Were there any upsets other than Zootopia winning Best Animated Feature Film and City of Stars winning Best Song? Oh, golly gee willikers. For example, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them won for costumes which i believe you did say that you you could see that one winning for best costume i know i was actually very excited about that no i don't i don't i mean because even all the way down to uh arrival for sound editing i mean there was a case for that one to win for sound you know for, for arrival to win on that i can't really think of anything off the top of my head that we were I mean, because we were, I felt we were very even-handed about it. Um, and then, like, even with the salesman, uh, clearly that was one that uh, we kind of knew going in. Yeah, I don't know. And all, I noticed you were right, though. Uh, Damien Chazelle got directing, which landed Moonlight for Best Picture. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that whole so. debacle in a, in a little bit. Because I'm interested on, on what your take on that is. But, so my, my upsets, mm-hmm. I think, were... Mm-hmm. Best animated film. I def definitely it should have been either Moana or uh or or definitely Kubo and the Two Strings. I when they were singing the Moana songs, 
I think it finally clicked, like, the music, at least, out of the context of the movie itself, is absolutely beautiful. And Well, I, I shouldn't say that. The, mu- the music is absolutely beautiful, and it just kind of all hit me during it. So I was like, you know, I could totally see Moana winning this, and if Moana won... I'd be totally happy with it. If that Moana song won, I'd be totally happy with it. But anything other than City of Stars, which they had to get John Legend to sing it, opposed to uh, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling singing it. But um, yeah, I definitely would have liked Audition to one. But I think the number one upset, off the top of my head, because I don't have the winners right in front of me, was Emma Stone's win for best actress for uh for Lala see Lane. and that was another one that was another one where i i just i i really and truly felt like there was it, it was bullshit but i knew it was bullshit we were calling it last week i mean we were literally calling it last week we were like i'm i'm worried that this is one of those ones that lala land is gonna fuck up um i i just don't think yeah i i just you know I don't know. The field was really good. I agree. I, I know we both called Jackie for it, um, but I just feel like it was one of those unstoppable things. Yeah. Um, well, Damon Chazelle did win Best Director, the youngest director to receive the Best Directing Oscar. He's like 32. Totally deserving it. I I mean, I, I, I definitely can back it. It's just with Emma Stone, she is the best part of that movie. I, I dug her character, I dug her performance, but it didn't necessarily stand out like Natalie Portman's portrayal of Jackie did. And I wrote in the email during our rundown of the episode this morning that I kind of wanted to talk about, should a Best Actor slash Best Actress award be based on an individual's performance and their popularity or based on the individual's performance within the context of the film? And what I mean by that is that in Jackie, I mean, the movie itself is very good. It definitely has its faults there midway through with pacing and and, and whatnot and what the movie decides to focus on. So it's definitely by no means best film material. But the movie is very competent, and her character is beautifully portrayed and handled. And within that movie, it works absolutely beautifully. Without that character, the movie would not have uh, would not have worked. And it was up to Natalie Portman to really carry that character and assist the movie play out the way it did. Absolutely stunning work. And it felt like with Emma Stone, she got it because, well, you know, La La Land is so hot right now. Re-energizing the musical genre is so hot right now with La La Land. And it felt like that she got it because of that weird, crazy, fascinating combination of all that shit smashing into one another. And because the movie did not do a number of things right, she stood out too much, and therefore she got it over Natalie Portman. It's like if maybe if Jackie wasn't, it was worse, (laughs) then maybe Natalie Portman would have had a better shot. I don't know. I think that the, I'm, I guess I'm with you on that. I, I think that the, it should be based on the actor or actress's contribution to the film itself and um but we also have to be careful because then we you know you might get an entire field of Viggo Mortensen's right 
where Viggo Mortensen was, again, clearly miles ahead of everyone else in the film, and that's why he got the Best Actor uh, nomination. Wait, I'm sorry. I have to stop you. You're not saying his name correctly. Oh. Viggo! There you go. Is that... Is that oh, okay. Um, but at the same time... Um, but at the same time, we also don't want to go the other way, which is where we land with Emma Stones. I think it's a, I think it's a delicate balance. We have, to, you, you have to kind of measure, is it, are we letting the movie override the performance, a la 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 Land, or are we letting the performance override the movie? And I do believe that, I do believe in this particular instance, Jackie was the best. I think that was the sweet spot. Um, but, and that's again where you can argue, like, that's how you landed Meryl Streep. Florence Foster Jenkins, it's an alright movie. It's, you know, not the best thing, but she was the best thing in it. Um, and so here we have, you know, Emma Stone also the best thing in La La Land in terms of the strength of the character and stuff, but I think that it was the movie carrying it, not her. So I don't know. I have a problem with La La Land on the whole at this point. I think that it's pretty clear that a movie based on the entire idea of LA being so cuckoo and crazy, it's referred to as La La Land, amongst other things. And then being celebrated by LA for it being LA and being La La Land is its own surreal, ironic, uh, you know, precipitation of, uh, arriving as its own fucking award. It's like, does anybody else see a problem with this? I don't, you know, okay, if you say so. So La La Land is the epitome of a movie that is story and style over substance. Yeah. I don't know. That I so I'm definitely with you, I think, on that. But I, I don't I don't think we should lean too heavily into it. So Yeah. I mean and again, I mean I don't want to take anything from away from Emma Stone. She was wonderful in the movie. She's a, yeah, she's a great actress yeah. and definitely the better singer. Yeah. It, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and dancer. Which is yeah. why which is again why I don't think City of Stars should have won. I would have been okay with um how far I'll go losing to audition. I would have been okay with that. Uh you know, I still um, you know, in a, you know, let's say 60 40 way favoring how far I'll go. But Audition was a great, great performance. It was a great, respectable song. City of Star, fuck that shit, man. Yeah. <sighs> and uh, due to time, there's one other thing I want to bring up. I was originally going to bring up this little Hollywood Reporter article how big of a corporate scandal is PWC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, facing after Oscars flub. I'm not going to get into it, but do check it out. THR.com, Hollywood Reporter. The one thing I did want to ask you and, and maybe discuss quickly with you, Matt, is does actually pertain to the announcement of the Best Picture Academy Award. As we all know, Faye Dunway announced La La Land as the recipient of the Best Picture Oscar when we know for a fact that Warren Betty was very confused by what he was seeing on the card. People are calling him senile. He's not senile. I like the guy. He was trying to do the right thing. And I give it to Faye Dunaway also, where I think she was. She just thought that he was trying to draw it out and be silly and just wanted him to fucking say 
who won the goddamn Academy Award. So when she looked at it, she was only looking at the title of the movie. And then we know what happens next. It, you know, we, we don't need to rehash it. But then people are saying that, of course, Moonlight got the movie, but they were saying that, well, we feel so bad for Moonlight because that whole debacle was a disservice to Moonlight actually winning the Best Picture Academy Award. And I wanted to ask you, Matt, does that do a disservice to Moonlight winning the award? Despite how gracefully both parties handled it, the Moonlight crew and the La La Land crew, it was like a, it was like a great transition. If anything, it was like an acknowledgement between two of the most well-revered movies of the year, that both movies were great, and both movies, according to a number of people, actually most people, deserved to win the Academy Award. But we all knew that Moonlight was the one that was the better of the two. But did that do a disservice in any way to Moonlight? Well, no. I mean, I, it was it was clearly an accident, and... You know, if you take five minutes to read up on it and uh, actually watch the video for yourself, you can you can you can see what's going on when you have the context. It, it was just an accident, um, and yes, it's it, it's kind of a craptastic accident when you're trying to end the award show and it's the you know it's the big winner pick and everything. But no, because um, everybody's going to write the articles about um, Moonlight and stuff. Yes, I would say initially. You know, because people are going to focus on the controversy for the next week or so. But in the grand history of things, Moonlight's the one that's going to be remembered as the best picture. It's the one that's going to be on the lists of all the best picture uh, winners. And it's going to be the one that's talked about when people talk about Bless. Uh, it's also going to be the one that's talked about when um, we have people referring to Oscars So White and stuff like that. So you're going to have all of these things that are going to play into a Moonlight being remembered as the best picture winner, even though, yes, there was the gaffe, and that's what's being talked about today. So, nah, fuck that. That's that's foolishness. And there you go. I agree 100%. Very cool. All right. Well, then, that is the, officially the Oscars detox. And uh, next week we're back to our uh, to our bonus segments as they are supposed to be, and we're going to do a three squared. We're actually going to revisit something we haven't talked about in almost four years. We're going to revisit our favorite opening scenes of movies. Uh, we're go- it's part two of the movies that uh, we like. So we're not going to clearly we're not going to use the movies that we used last time so that's what we'll do for our bonus segment next week and without further ado i believe we shall go to the movies here we go folks it's the movies We've got two movies for you this week, The Lego Batman Movie and The Great Wall. Um, where do you want to start, sir? How about The Great Wall? All right, The Great Wall. What was, uh, what were they trying to keep out? Audiences! That's what they were trying to keep out. Okay, now that was kind of a low blow. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Great Wall but true. is a 20... 20- <laughs> but really absolutely true. true. <laughs> Granted, it's been doing fantastically 
internationally. But I think oh yeah, it's doing great in China. Yeah, but Absolutely. but like domestically here in the states, I think it's going to be losing like eighty million or something. Well, I mean, technically, I don't know how you could technically lose eighty million dollars when you're going to take your global rake as the whole, and it's already made like three hundred million dollars worldwide. Or something. Well, according so, to Universal, who's yeah. the big distributor in the U.S., I don't know. Granted, it's Universal; oh, well, they can take they, the hit. But I was going to say maybe they paid eighty million dollars for it to be distributed here in the United States. So I guess that's how they would lose 80 million. But, um, all right, here's what's up. 2016 monster film directed by Zhang Yimou and stars Matt Damon. Um, and also, uh, we have Pedro Pascal and Willem Dafoe as our other, uh, non Chinese actors in this film. Um, all right. So what we have here is basically kind of a, um, basically glorified pirates bandits if you will who are trying to take advantage of the magic of gunpowder which they refer to as black powder in the movie um who are then sidetracked on their you know evil doing quest for greed and lust for power by uh aliens basically and um you know and and it's and and when faced with adversity you know, will you rise to the occasion and become a better man, or will you fall to your baser instincts? And this is set, of course, against the backdrop of the actual building of the Great Wall and its designation, of course, during the Song Dynasty. Now, um, it's, uh, and, and I think when we were covering this movie initially, uh, there were people who were really upset in China because like, oh, you're talking about Matt Damon, this, Matt Damon, that. And they're like, guys, Matt Damon, you know, is not the bulk of this movie and stuff. And they, they're right. And, uh, and we were sticking up for the movie in that regard back then. And I still maintain that that was correct, that we should have stuck up for the movie back then. But I also expressed at that time or uh, later on if not definitely at that time that i am kind of curious what that's going to do to the marketing here because they're not going to market it based on the chinese side they are going to market it based on matt damon and or willem dafoe and they chose to focus on matt damon who is not the focus of the movie um which is which is fair but the problem is is that you know you got to you got to lean towards your strengths and people are going to see a movie because Matt Damon's in, especially after he held the Martian on his own for two hours. Um, so I think people were standoffish uh, mainly at first because they weren't really sure what they were getting themselves into. And that's fair. But then when you get into the movie itself, what you have here is a movie where truly, lit- literally, literally and figuratively, Two cultures have collided. Um, we are, we are trying to find a way to make Eastern cinema work in a Western, um, in a, in a Western world view. Now, that's not to say one is better than the other by any stretch of the imagination, but it is obvious that things are different. And so what happens is, is the, um, uh, Zheng Yimou is, is, very it it comes across in the film that the filmmaking is very conflicted are they trying to lean more towards eastern influences towards what makes chinese film great are they trying to make um 
Are they trying to use Western conventions and make what Western film, why Western films are great? Um, and the thing is, is that, uh, it's, it's not a little bit of both. It's, they're primarily going off what makes Eastern film great, what makes Chinese cinema great, with a smattering of Westernized, uh, things to keep other audiences interested. Um, and it, and because of that, it doesn't work outside of its home territory. In in point of fact, that's okay. There, that's why certain things only work here in the U.S. that don't work elsewhere. And it's the same thing. It doesn't mean that that way is wrong, but it does translate into really bad storytelling. Um, you've got enough. Uh, you've got a lot of things going on with obvious digital effects. You have a lot of things going on in terms of the way that ceremony is. Uh, so heavily influenced it doesn't translate into great uh, especially in an action alien movie it doesn't translate to something that has enough heart to carry it through uh, you're left with spectacle but wondering what the spectacle is all about however there are scenes like there's one where uh, Matt Damon's character another they're on like the outside fighting some stuff and then it like creates this really cool like rainbow effect on the other side of the wall and everything so you can see like these really cool glimmers of awesomeness um, where they do it. The special effects aren't terrible either, but you're just left with this disjointed hole that doesn't give you a good story. There are certain aspects of the action that are really cool, but those aspects don't represent the entirety of the movie because of the way the story is told and things that work in Chinese cinema. I don't... Um, I, I don't think this is a terrible movie, but I, based on all of its failings, it I can't even eke it into the okay zone. I'm giving this one a 2.25, mainly because of some really cool battle sequences when they happen, some neat special effects flickering, and I think that a lot of the cinematography um, deserves a good look, uh, uh, another good looking at, but. The story on the whole and the execution on the whole really aren't very good. 2.25 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? Go and see this movie in IMAX 3D if you have like 11 bucks to spare. Definitely don't spend any more than 13, 14, 15 bucks. I think if you do that, you'll have a good time at the movies. Three stars. It's all spectacle. Just get used to Matt Damon's interesting accent slipping in and out throughout the entire movie. Whenever he's really serious and being dramatic, he has the accent. When he's not, when he's trying, when he's trying to say something in Chinese, he has no accent. So it's it's kind of a game. It could be a good drinking game, Matt Damon accent game. But the action is really cool. The coloring is really cool, and and that's it. Matt, you nailed it on the head. It's spectacle. With this movie, I was able to buy into it. I would just like to have more substance. Three out of five. All right, all right. Well, then that leaves us with the Lego Batman movie. Yes, 2017 3D computer animated superhero comedy films directed by Chris McKay. And it stars Will Arnett, Zach Galifianakis, Michael Sarah, Rosario Dawson, and Ralph finds um all right so what we have here is a literal in cinematic universe <laughs> extension of uh batman worlds and of course done in lego 
And not only is it an extension of the cinematic universe of the Batman films in all of its various incarnations, it is also an extension of all of the cool stuff that happened from the comic books. And what we have here is basically Batman is the coolest guy on the planet, but when he is faced with a new commissioner who wants to use uh, <laughs> cooperation <laughs> and uh, teamwork and ninjutsu as well, because that's uh, in the background there, uh, uh, Batman doesn't want to play along because Batman is alone and you have to fight by yourself because that's what makes Batman great. Batman doesn't need anyone. But doesn't Batman really need someone? Doesn't everybody really need someone? Uh, and that's really the point of the movie. Uh, even when bat, even when good guys need their bad guys. Uh, this movie is absolutely amazing. Visual jokes abound. Pay attention to things in the background. Like I said, the, the ninjutsu joke and stuff. There's all sorts of stuff plastered around. And it's not, and it's not that you, are bored and you're like oh i'm just kind of looking around the rest of the screen it's it's very very eye-catching you can follow along with all of the action that's going on screen but you can also look around and start to appreciate a lot of the in jokes and a lot of the really cool things that they're doing in the backgrounds as well and it almost becomes a part of the movie experience because you start finding yourself oh wait what's what's going on here what are we looking here what do you see here um, and the fact that they were just so completely unafraid to um, bring in outside of Batman universe stuff because it's Lego, believe it or not, actually added to the entire story as a whole. And there's so much fun stuff. I'm not going to spoil any of it for you. The only problem with this movie, and it was just only one problem, which is I found myself so surprised with because I wasn't the biggest fan of the Lego movie. However, this movie has inspired me to go back and uh, give it another, give it a second look. Um, the only thing that I did not like about this movie was sometimes Batman as a character, the way he's written, he kind of belabors the point in order to in order to draw out the plot a little bit and and advance it. And at, and in those few instances, and they're really only only a few. Um, I felt it kind of slowed the movie down a little bit. Uh, and and it's because it's Batman on screen more or less by himself when these things are happening. Uh, although it does occasionally happen with a couple of the characters, um, you, you kind of have to go there. But at the same time, it does belabor the point. It's still a whole lot of fun. Absolutely hilarious. Really and truly does work in canon with all of the other Batman films. Whether you're Nolan, whether you're Burton, whether you're Schumacher. It, I mean, seriously, it's absolutely outstanding. 4.5 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. Well, I don't know if you want me to bring this home or not. Because I had a horrible time at the movie theater watching this movie. I saw it in the Dolby Atmos theater, huge screen. I had the leather recliner seats. You know, the sound was pristine and wonderful. The theater was packed, older folk, younger folk, little kids. The audience for this movie. And there was not much audience reaction to it. I did not like this movie. One and a half out of five 
stars for me. I wanted it to be over halfway through. It's the same surface-level jokes from start to finish. It's the same jokes and knocks on the original Batman flicks that I've seen and heard and even joked about for many, many years. It's been done before, like the whole shark repellent stuff. How many times do we have to hear about the fucking shark repellent from the original Batman movie? It's been done. Move on. Do something more original. And I really didn't think the movie could get worse with all those many, 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 many surface-level jokes and sight gags and whatnot. But then there's the explosion of the out-of-canon characters and out-of-canon franchises that make an appearance in this movie. You have the Harry Potters, the Doctor Whos, anything that Warner Brothers has touched, it's in this movie. And it's the same thing with them. It's the same surface-level jokes that we've all that we've all heard time and time again. I don't know how many people of you have watched. I'm trying to remember what the YouTube series was or or what it's called. I think they still do it, but it's a it's basically a mashup of all the superheroes, but it's like stop motion with the superhero dolls and stuff, and they do all these same jokes. They've been doing all these same jokes since of uh, 2004, 2005 whenever they first started. So Beating the dead horse. And it was so fucking tiring. So fucking tiring. And the movie is, what, uh, barely an hour and a half? I wanted it to be over halfway through. So 1.5 out of 5. I didn't absolutely hate it. I thoroughly enjoyed the first Lego movie because I thought it was more original. I thought the jokes were a little bit more thought out and entertaining. I, I I love Batman in the Lego movie. I thought what they did with him was absolutely perfect, but it was small doses. To me, this was like the Minion movie of this franchise. You know, there, you can only take certain characters in small doses, and I really needed that with the Batman character. So 1.5 out of 5, doesn't matter. I'm the only one who liked it. I'll take it. Or didn't like it. Anyway. Or didn't like it. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> well, okay. And I don't know. Uh, for me, I went and saw it on Saturday morning, took the kids. We did the whole Cinemark XD experience and everything like that. And the audience was pretty even mix of adults and kids. And everybody was having a really great time. So maybe my theater experience leans into my enjoyment of the movie. But um, yeah. I, so I, I don't want to discount that. I do, you know, full disclosure. I want to make sure, you know, it, you know, my my exuberance might have something to do with my enjoyment at the theater. So, um, and maybe also because I really needed to laugh that day. That, that, <laughs> oh, yeah. could, that could also be playing into this. I don't, you know, full disclosure. Don't want to discount anything. So, uh, I guess this will mean that we'll both have to kind of revisit. Uh, obviously not this movie right away, but I guess we might need to revisit Lego movie and, you know, maybe next year or something or six, seven months from now, revisit this one again. I don't know. We'll see. But for next week, I think that is the end of the movies, though. And next week's movies are going to be Get Out and Logan. Notice that I'm not saying Get Out Logan or Logan, Get Out. (laughs) Two different (laughs) movies. Get Out and Logan. Uh, those are going to be the movies for next week, and I believe that brings us to The Spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right.
Worldwide, where the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Carise of Solace. You can check them out, check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Carise of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can always follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud. And uh, now we get to say that thanks to Michael, Sarah, Matt, I get to say this. Acting is such a weird job. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>